if you remember, I've stopped a little bit early. So if you'll turn, uh, not early time-wise, but early in my notes-wise, and um, if you'll turn back to Mark chapter 12, <clears throat> we're going to look at the uh, response that um, the scribe uh, had to Jesus once uh, Jesus answered his question about the greatest commandment. And um, you remember we um, uh, said that uh, the, the scribe was not malicious in his asking, and Jesus in verse 29 answers his question with uh, verse 29, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And as we talked about that, you know, that's the, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, the the Shema and the hero Israel and the implications of that, that these Jewish minds there would have grasped that instantly. They've heard this. Every synagogue service is opened with it. And uh, Matthew in his account even says, on these two commandments hang the whole law of the prophets. And that's pretty much where we ended. So we're going to pick up with verse 32. And that says, And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. And there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So we see from this that the scribe's reaction revealed that he really was an open-minded inquirer, ready to accept the truth, quite different from these other guys that, you know, earlier in the day. Um, he he received a, a commendation from Jesus rather than a condemnation, right? And he his uh, reply is, is uh, the scribe regarded the reply of Jesus as admirable, and he didn't hesitate to say so openly because he comes back out and, and he says... Um, uh, I lost my spot. He, he came back and, and told him, you're, you're right, teacher. And the two commandments were repeated by the scribe himself there in verse 31, but he substituted the word understanding for soul and mind. But if you think about that for a minute, isn't that the same thing? You know, the understanding is the intelligence, the insight, you know, what we call mind, um, mind, heart, soul, uh, what is that? I think we've talked about that before. I talk about this a lot in counseling, but what is that? can't remember if we've talked about it here or not, but what is when we say the, the mind, the heart, the soul? Are, are you guys okay with saying that that's, those three things are the same? You know, I think so. We talked about last week, you know, when Jesus said heart, mind, soul, and strength, he wasn't making man into four parts. Um, you know, you may be here and are a trichotomist, but I'm a dichotomist, and meaning that man is two parts. So what is the the mind, the heart, the soul? What is that? The spirit, okay. It's the essence. It's what makes you, you, and me, me. You know, I've been, I shared this with my small group Friday night, studying this all this about this resurrection. I, I am so, this has just helped me really understand, you know, who I am, Right now, personality-wise, this is who I'm going to be forever. 
right, in heaven with Christ, this is it. Now, my resurrected body will be different, of course, but, um, but my personality, that, that's not going to change. Well, the side of me that is full of wickedness and sin and guile and vile and all that, that's not going to be there. But when I do manage to have a couple of seconds of goodness, you know, that's, that personality, the way I think, that, that's who I am. And that's what's going to always exist. That excites me. You know, that's how we're all going to know each other there. Right. Um, you can, you know, share your stories there like you do here. You know, oh, yeah, that's Tim. You know, we'll know each other much more so than we know each other now. So when he's, he's not, the scribe's not adding a word, trying to throw things upside down. He just understood that what Jesus was talking about included the understanding. And that's the same thing. Right. But when he says uh, the scribe said that these two commandments, he says, were much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That is a hugely bold claim, isn't it? What is he saying? What is he saying with that? Think about that. You know, that, that those two commandments are more than all the whole combined package of burnt offerings and sacrifices. What's he getting at? This is when y'all answer. Yeah, that this moral part of this is weightier, it's bigger, it's a bigger deal, it's more impactful than everything that the Jews are doing. Now, I thought just this morning this, and I, if I'm way off base, y'all please correct me, but what I thought of when I thought about that again this morning was Peter, when he says that, um, that the word of God, this is paraphrasing, but when Peter says that the word of God is more important, more uh, precious than seeing Jesus transfigured, that's kind of, to me, the same thing, you know. So, in other words, this experiential stuff that we all have does have impacts in our lives. I'm not saying you throw all that out, but the word of God and, and the loving God with all of who you are and loving your neighbor as yourself is much more important than all the ceremonial things that you got going on, right? So think about that for a minute and how that could impact our lives today. How do you think if we lived by that, if we realized that and we lived our lives knowing that that loving God and serving others, you know, kind of, shortening the Shema, uh, is more impactful than all of our stuff we do at church in the world. What would that look like in your life practically tomorrow? What do you think? That's right. I, I remember um, this isn't true. Well, the statement, the guy said it, that's true, but what he said is not really true. Gandhi, right? He said, I, I, I would consider being a Christian if I didn't know so many of them. You know, now, I mean, of course, he's not going to be a Christian unless God decides he's going to be. That's the part that's not true. But you get his point, though? Yeah. So what is he talking about? He met so many hypocrites 
that claimed Christianity that it just wasn't attractive to him. I think that's why Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 1, again, paraphrasing, you know, when he says, you know, hear, hear my teaching, hear my words to you, O son, because they are a, a graceful wreath upon your head and, a, and an adornment of a necklace around your neck. What in the world's that? I mean, are we supposed to go around with these big old hats and necklaces on? You know, but what he's saying is that, that somebody that is walking according to the word of God, it is so attractive to people that they're going to want it. That's what he's getting at there. And, and I think that's the same thing here, you know, that, that if we're loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're loving our neighbor as ourselves, that that's going to be so important. That's going to impact people more than the fact that, you know, if you went and told your neighbor that you went to church this morning. You know, if you go cut his yard this afternoon, that's going to impact him more than the fact. So, my yard needs cut. No, <laughs> it doesn't. Um, so, this guy comprehended Jesus' reply, and because of that, Jesus told him, you know what, you're not far from the kingdom of God. So his comprehension of the importance of this kind of love had placed him near the kingdom of God, but we don't need to be mistaken. He'd come a long way, right? But the words not far from make it clear that he still had a ways to go, right? To go further and accept that love in the person of, of Christ, and which you know really is the kingdom incarnate. That's, that's going all the way. And uh, one commentator I read said, not far from the kingdom, how aptly it describes the condition of many in our own times. And that statement really hit me, right? Because, I mean, we, here we are in the South, right? The Bible Belt in, you know, that there are so many people that, that are right there where this guy was, I think, you know, that they, they, they've maybe tasted a little bit of the church. They've, they've seen, some blessings on people, and it's attractive. And I, I, I've often wondered how, or not how, but why thousands and thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in our city today, Atlanta, not Woodstock, but are, um, are, are at church right now, right? Now, do you think for a minute that all of those people are saved? You know, so are they... You know, they've got an understanding. They're not far from the kingdom, but they still got a ways to go. So why are they there? That's a question I've asked myself for years. Why are thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in churches in Atlanta, Georgia today, and we would claim, you know, that they're probably, you know, many of those that are not true believers. So why are they even there? Okay. That's, yeah. 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 They're playing that ceremonial side that that they, they they was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Okay, and I think that's one of the points that Christ is getting at here. You know, you've got the right idea, but you hadn't gone 
to the full truth, right? So the Sanhedrin's attempt to discredit and destroy Jesus ended in complete failure. We've seen, we've been week after week, we've been looking at these guys' failure, and here they are. And the text tells us at the end, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions, right? But there was another confrontation getting ready to unfold here, and this time, it's Jesus taking the offensive. And uh, he asked the religious leaders a question they couldn't answer. So now things are turned around a little bit. So look at verse, we'll read 35 through 37. Uh, It says, "And, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now, I've struggled with this almost all week. You know, what in the world? You know, that Jesus has just been inundated with these guys all day long. And now they, he, you know, they're silenced. They don't dare ask him anymore. And he goes on the attack, right? And, and it's just kind of the tables are flipped again, so to speak. So, the, the, of course, the counterattack here, the recipients of the counterattack are the scribes, the scholars, the teachers of the law. And um, they had to have been uh, very nervous, as Jesus begins to question them. Do you ever get nervous when you're, uh, you know, instructing and, and, and um, you know, do you ever get nervous with that? Yeah. Sure. Why? A couple of reasons, I think, but what would be one? You want to be sure that you're saying it right. All right, sure that you're saying it right. Fear of God, perhaps, you know, that you're going to cut it straight. All right, what else? What would be another reason? Fear of man? Sure, absolutely. That's probably the biggest one for me, right? You know, fear of man. You know, what will they think? Um, well, I think there's a lot of, I think both. There's a lot of, he's, he's directly to the scribes. But, yeah, because it says there that... Um, in verse 35, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? So, I mean, I think the whole group's there again. This is the great throng. That's, that's the whole audience. Well, I, I think all, you know, because these guys had just questioned him, and he answered. So they're all hanging on the fringes, perhaps. You know, maybe they've even backpedaled a little bit as he comes with the uh, the approach, you know, like, We've been at this all day, and we haven't tripped him up yet, right? Maybe that's what they're thinking. So maybe we ought to start heading towards the door. And then the, the believers, the disciples and some of the believers are still kind of like y'all, you know. So that means you guys are the scribes, or they're kind of heading out the door over that way. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, I think maybe picture somewhat like that. I've often in studying this wondered how <clears throat> this, you know, that's why I went into that whole description of the temple 
um, a month ago or whenever that was of to get in my mind the um, the um, kind of what it would look like you know that again keep in mind this was Passover time so there are lots of people lots of hundreds of thousands that are crowded in through Jerusalem and and he as we said you know after he disrupted the the uh, commerce that was going on there and I think from my study I you know I'm not saying you got to believe this is not a right or wrong here, but I believe that he actually stopped the ceremonial worship at the point, too, when he didn't allow them to carry any more vessels to the temple. Some commentators think that <clears throat> that he just didn't allow them to make it a cut through because it was shorter to go through there than to go all the way around. So either way, you know, I, but I, I think, you know, he, he was stopping it all, the commerce, the worship, everything. And, and this was all taking place in the court of the Gentiles, if you remember. So they had made such a mockery out of the place that the non-Jews could even go and worship. You know, they couldn't even do whatever type of worship they wanted to do because the Jews had taken this area over and turned it into all this commerce. You know, just a mockery of it all. So it'd be neat to go, um, you know, and, and find research, you know, and get a movie of what it really looked like in there and how many, you know, how that was going on. And um, But, you know, he asked the question about the scribes here. And in Matthew's account, in Matthew twenty two forty one, it says, what do you think about the Christ? Now, <clears throat> historically, we know that the Jewish people viewed the Messiah as nothing more than a man. <clears throat> and they expected him to be an earthly ruler of unparalleled power and influence, so. And you could read that over and over in the Old Testament. Uh, we knew, they knew, we knew that he would be a descendant of David. And like David, he would defeat their foes. But here's where it falls apart. Is they viewed him as a savior for the nation as a whole, a political savior, but not the savior of individual souls. They, they weren't ready to go there. So I, I think that, that's huge for us to, to keep in mind when you reflect on the question that he asked there. So, um, and his, his question, interestingly, was not meant to deny the correctness of, of this teaching by the scribes that the Messiah was going to be this ruler, but rather to show that it wasn't the whole truth. They weren't given the whole picture to the people. They didn't know it, so they couldn't give it, but they were given like half of it. <clears throat> so the firm teaching of the scribes was that the Messiah is the son of David, excuse me, the teaching that the Messiah would be the son, the the promised royal heir of David was strongly attested to in the scriptures. I mean, you see it in 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 89, Psalm 132, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, and over and over and over. We could, could look all those up if you'd like, but if, you know, that's, that's a done promised royal heir of David was strongly attested to in the scriptures. Anyone who claimed Messiah would would not establish anyone who claimed that the Messiahship who could not establish Davidic descent would have been scornfully rejected by the scribes, by the entire Sanhedrin, by the um, Jewish people as a whole. So his question really was, in what sense is the Messiah the son of David? And the implication 
of the question is, how can they say that the Messiah is nothing more than a human descendant of David? That's all the further they were willing to go. The Messiah is nothing more than a human descendant of David. And that exposes their erroneous view that the Messiah would be nothing more than a powerful military political leader. And the leaders in the account of Matthew, they they give a correct response to the question. The, The question is, what do you think about the Christ? Matthew 22, 42. They said to him, the son of David. So the genealogies are there, right? We've all read those uh, or skipped over them, maybe, as some do. But they're there. Um, the, he was the uh, dis- proof that he was descended of David. His father uh, and mother, direct descendants of David. So naturally, that makes him a direct descendant of David. You can read those in Matthew 1, 1 through 17, Luke 23 through 38. So these records were carefully preserved in the temple. And, I mean, don't you know that the Sanhedrin would have gone and examined them? I mean, they knew this stuff. I mean, it would be like any good lawyers. Not Have you ever seen the law libraries? You know, I guess the only it's the only profession that probably um, uh, their libraries rival pastors' libraries, right? Maybe. Um, I mean, the law library is probably, I mean, I don't know if y'all ever seen a law library. I mean, in their offices, I know they're big, but in pastors' offices, they got a lot of books as well. But uh, the, you know, the federal law library, I guess, has probably got more books than uh, uh, like maybe Master Seminary Library. I don't know. What do you, you've, you've looked in there, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot of books in the seminary library, right? Um, so, and from what I hear, Al Mohler's basement's got quite a few books, too, if you ever want to go examine that. So, these guys would have gone and examined the records, right? So, <clears throat> if Jesus hadn't been a descendant from David, his claim would would have been proven false. I mean, there's no doubt they would have shot him down, right? But at this point, nobody raises any questions against Jesus as the Messiah. And for me, that just proves, you know, that his Davidic descent was indisputable. I mean, after all, just two days ago, in the triumphal entry, the crowds were shouting the son of David, right? So, and nobody refuted it then either. So the scribes' belief that the Messiah would be the son of David was absolutely correct, But, as I said a minute ago, it was incomplete. So Jesus tosses them a surprise question, which blows up their thinking. Verse 36, David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. Here's the question that just blows him out of the water. So how is he his son? So, of course, what he's doing here is he's quoting using scripture again in his brilliance, the way he, I just love the way that, that's what he's done over and over, right? Is he uses the word of God, which these guys were supposed to be experts at. And, and he just blows them up time and again. So Psalm 110 verse 1, Messianic Psalm, it's quoted several times in the New Testament. It's in Acts chapter 2 in Peter's sermon. Um, it's in Hebrews twice. 
So Psalm 110 proves that the Messiah could not merely be a man because David himself referred to him as Lord. So either David was out of his mind or it proves that he wasn't merely a man. David declared him Lord. that's, That's a great question. How did David know that he was Lord? Where'd that idea come into him from? What do you think? The Holy Spirit. Yeah. I mean, because all scripture is what? Inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. So the Holy Spirit revealed that to David. Um, So for for the Messiah to be David's Lord, he has to be more than a man. How can the Messiah be both David's son and Lord if he's merely human? That's what Jesus is getting at here. And like I said, it took me a couple days to, to get my head around that. And their, in their rejection of his claims to be more than just a man, they were blinding themselves to the truth, to the truth of, and, and to the truth of what Jesus really right here, kind of in a way, it's kind of a veiled uh, self-enunciation of, hey, I'm the Messiah, the divine human fulfillment of this prophecy. Right, so God then declared David's Lord uh, to David's Lord, "Sit at my right hand till I put your enemies under your feet." You know, which is elevating the Messiah to His right hand. Is that's a reference to divine position of power, meaning you know that He's bringing, elevating Jesus to the being co-equal with the Father. And what do we call that term? He's really, really affirming. His deity, right? The, he's, he's affirming the godness, if you will, of Jesus Christ. Exodus fifteen six says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Psalm 20, verse 6, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Psalm 44, 3 For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm in the light of your face, for you delighted in them. So, again, the the Messiah's rule will be as absolute as God's rule, and God puts his enemies under his feet. And Luke says that he makes his enemies a footstool. So, again, Jesus' deity is, is... clear i've got a bunch of scriptures written down here i casually and i mean casually counted 75 passages that attest to the deity of christ 75 okay uh, and that makes me remember uh, uh, josh mcdowell was an atheist and he he wrote a book that, that's called evidence that demands a verdict i don't know if you've ever read that it's really quite interesting and he um he tried, as so many people have, to disprove Christ uh, as the Messiah. And he, he said, he gave a mathematical formula for uh, one person throughout history to be able to fulfill only eight messianic prophecies. Only eight. All right. And how many were there total? I don't really know. Over 100? <laughs> Somebody help me out, right? And, yeah, about it. All right. 
That works. So, but, so only eight. That's not very many out of a bazillion, right? So only eight. One guy, I mean, just think throughout history, you know, how many people could maybe just fulfill eight? It maybe could happen. And, you know, maybe. Well, the mathematical formula, Drew's the math teacher, is 10 to the 37th power. All right? That means nothing to me. I think that means... <laughs> I think that means 10 with 37 zeros. Well, that still means nothing to me, except it would take a lot to write it. So Josh McDowell breaks it down to layman's terms, and here's what it is. If you took the state of Texas and, and covered it two feet deep with silver dollars, okay, then you took one silver dollar and painted it red on both sides, and you flew over the state of Texas in a helicopter and toss the silver dollar out anywhere you want. Then you take a man and blindfold him and place him in the center of the state of Texas and he's got one shot to pick the red silver dollar. That's 10 to the 37th power. Right? And um, then he's got another one about something lining up to the moon and how many cigarettes it would take to reach the moon or something. It's the same type of thing, right? That's right. (laughs) Maybe it wasn't cigarettes. I don't want to misquote him. But, you know, that's a lot. For for one person to be the Messiah, you know, eight, and Jesus is claiming it here. So, you know, like I said, I casually counted 75 Actually, I wrote four down, so that would be 79 passages that prove that. And then it ends with, and the great throng heard him gladly, right? So the fact that they heard him gladly tells us that, you know what, they, they appreciated the, the intelligence and the power of his teaching and the freshness of his method dealing with these scribes. That had to be refreshing for the poor old Gentile that was there, right? I mean, you've... Can you imagine in your mind these guys? We're getting ready to see how pompous these guys really were. And, and, but just, you know, you had just, yes, you know, he just smoked them. You know, he just blew them up, right? He blew them up on what they're supposed to be the authorities on. He used the word of God to refute what they are supposed to be the experts at. And um, that's why I kind of... Uh, I get a little, I don't know, I don't want to say vengeful because that's wrong, but I kind of like it when, um, uh, when, you, when you see a very gifted apologist go against somebody that's trying to attack the faith. Have you ever seen that? Those guys, James White or Al Mohler, one of those guys that just, you know, we heard, my wife and I heard Al Mohler at the counseling conference back in October and I just, I leaned over to Kit and said, I just, this, this guy, I, I don't understand how his mind can be that brilliant. He, I said, why don't we put him up in one of these hierarchy places? You know, he could just blow everybody up <laughs> just with his speech, just with the, the knowledge of the word of God alone. So, um, you know, that John MacArthur used to be on Larry King a lot. And, and they, everybody would throw these questions at him. Did you ever... I mean, you don't have to look at it for more than a minute or two to realize how MacArthur answers every time. Every time. Well, the Bible says, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, he doesn't, oh, wait a minute, you know, he's got it in him. And, uh, and, and it just silences those guys. They, they have no comeback. And, 
You know, that's Jesus, the extraordinaire, the one that wrote it, does the same thing here. So, you know, these guys, the scribes, they, they, the Gentiles, I think, were going, yes. And the scribes were, you know, they were dominated with their earthly, political, nationalistic dreams of human deliverance. And um, they, they glossed right over the, the spiritual, the scriptural truth. So now we see that in verse 38, Jesus steps up his attack. He's, he's, gonna really, he's going for it now. Moving from the implicit criticism of the scribes to the straightforward attack as he criticizes their actions and their motives. And, and it says, and, his te- and in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses for a pretense and make long, for, for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So having exposed their inadequacy to interpret the scriptures properly, he now solemnly pronounces condemnation on them. And these guys, um, you know, what What if uh, in, in the business world, businessmen are trained to wear a certain attire to show power? What is it? Two things in particular. A red tie. That's it. That's you're you're dominating when you wear a, a blue or a gray suit with a red tie. That that's and these guys, I think I looked at the same thing with these scribes. They got power suits, right? So that you're going to look at them and they and they're going to receive the homage and the people in the marketplace are going to be attracted to you because you're the power guy. And um, I remember the first time my wife and I went into a uh, Baptist church. We, we were, we, we were going to give it three strikes and we were out. And there, there were two. We had two. The, I, I grew up in the Catholic church. She grew up in the Methodist church. And the preacher didn't have a robe on. You know, I think that's kind of the thing. You know, I mean, you ever think, why do they wear robes? I mean, is it like a, ooh, look at me. I'm the big guy on stage, you know. But, um, and then the second one was they didn't say the Lord's Prayer, and they do that in the Catholic and the Methodist. So power suits, right, to get people. They, and they were, these guys were proud lovers of praise and position. And Jesus says, beware of them. You know, back in chapter 8, uh, he, he had warned them um, in chapter 8, verse 15, he'd warned against their false teaching. And now he's warning against just them as a whole, the whole, not just their teaching, just them individually. So do you think that's a concern today? Are there proud false teachers all over the place today? There certainly is, isn't there? You know, many today uh, promote tolerance of false teachers in the name of love and unity. Um, I read this week, First Baptist, Greenville, South Carolina. Guess what? Ordaining homosexuals. Right? Yeah. Yeah. In the name of love, acceptance, and unity. So, Scripture, of course, doesn't advocate tolerance over these present emissaries from Satan here, and, and certainly not in our day either. Instead, it denounces false teachers. Uh, for example, Isaiah... 56, 9 through 11, shows Israel's irresponsible leaders. It says this, Isaiah 56, 9. All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest, 
His watchmen are blind. They are without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are the shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain. Key word there. I think one and all. Or Matthew 7.15 says, uh, uh, you know, the blind guides leading the blind. Over and over in Scripture, there's examples of denouncing false teachers. You know, people, man, they get bent out of shape today. I'm not talking about, you know, you know what I mean. I mean, I don't think, like Brian said a minute ago, we can't be just, you know, in our pompous little, you know, reformed Calvinistic bubble and all you other guys are, you know, we saw that uh, back in um, uh, chapter um, 9, verse 38, uh, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is, is for us. So, you know, we've got to be careful, but yet, I mean, when you got, you know what's going on. You get the point, right? Um, so we've got to be sure that we're not, speaking against people that are not necessarily leading people away from the truth of the gospel. And um, I've got tons of examples written down here. For some reason, I thought this was going to be a really short lesson. So I'm going to skip all of those, but one. Romans 16, 17 through 18 says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. You know, so I think all of this is fueled by pride. You know, pride fuels all that thrive on the praise of man, right? And this, here's, I found a Fabulous quote on this this week by Woodrow Wilson, president in 1913. He knew of a preacher that fit this bill, and he said this. He's the only man I know who can strut while sitting down. (laughs) Isn't that good? That's what we're trying to avoid, right? So these guys, they're full-length, expensive, ornate outer garments, the fringes, which we know they've extended, you know, to... Look at me. You know, these robes would flow as they walked and, you know, the flamboyancy of them. But they, they failed to, if you failed to recognize them in a crowd, then you were, you were spoken down about. You know, you, you, they wanted, their whole game was to gain attention to themselves. And you better let it be known that you recognize them as that. And... Um, you know, so of course they had the most prominent seats in the synagogues, and but their most sinister thing—that was all bad enough. But the most sinister thing about them was their greed, and we see that in verse forty, where it says they they devour widows' houses. You know, they had a a flagrant disregard for the Old Testament passages, such as Exodus twenty two twenty two, which says, "You shall not mistreat any widow." or fatherless child. Proverbs fifteen twenty five. the Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. So these guys were preying on the most helpless members of society, and they were abusing their 
widow's hospitality and defrauding them of what they had, you know, taking from them what they had. And um, one a commentator named McKenna says this about, about this. He says, as one of their functions, scribes serve as consultants in estate planning for widows. Their role gives them the opportunity to convince the lonely and susceptible women that their money and property should either be given to the scribe for his holy work or to the temple for its holy ministries. In either case, the scribes gain personally. Isn't that horrible? So not only did they do all this other stuff, but they took advantage of the widows. And finally, uh, he says here that that they have a, a pretense to make long prayers. You know, the, the, an outward show, long prayers, showcasing their supposed imagined holiness and devotion to God. I think of Matthew 6, 5, where he says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Do you got this for some reason this popped into my mind as I was studying this and some of y'all aren't hardly old enough to maybe weren't even around then but in the in the early maybe mid 90s um there was a movement in the ba- Southern Baptist world that a lot of people uh took on um and a lot of pastors did this does anybody know what I'm referring to is that enough bait to- it was a. It, it was very, very popular. It was a forty-day fast. Do you remember that? There was pastors, you know, and you know what? I was a, I was in a large church at the time, and you could tell everybody that was doing it. You know why? Because they all looked around at each other. You know, there, it was the talk of the town. It was the talk of the country. You know, I mean, like, I am more godly than you because you've only fasted since lunch. I've been, I'm three weeks in. How, how long you got? I mean, I was hearing those things, you know, and I just thought, wow. You know, and then all of a sudden, uh, yeah, yeah, some of, some of them did, some of them did get, you know, next week you see one with a Band-Aid on his head and about 12 stitches where he stood up and, you know, hit his head on his desk because he passed out. But, um, but um, you know, all of a sudden, why do you think their clothes were fitting after three weeks, after a month, you know? Could you tell? Sure, you know. So, that you know, I'm not saying that's what these guys were doing, but I thought of that, you know, and these guys were flat out, these scribes were flat out trying to draw attention to themselves to look more godly. And, um, you know, nothing but a sham, an outward show. You know, they they pretended that their expression of their love for God was their real aim, but really what they were after was they were after esteem from people, and particularly these these poor widows, right? And, yeah, <laughs> I'm holier than you. My tassels are longer than yours. Look at my phylactery, right? Jesus says instead of being rewarded by God, though, at the end of verse 40, that they get the greater condemnation. So, you know, they're going to get theirs. going to be heavier sentence than, than the even one scribe to the next. Their sentence was going to be, be worse, but... You know, if you want a good account of what's coming their way, the the woes in Matthew 23, 
you know, those are scary. Um, the story seems to take a really odd turn now, though. After a long, wearying day, Jesus sits down. And the last event inside the temple that day, verse 41 says, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had and all she had to live on. So this beautiful narrative here forms a bright contrast to the greed of the scribes, does it not? These guys were all about the show, and here comes this this poor woman. You know, and of course, she's universally presented as the model of a dutiful, faithful giver against the ugly backdrop of these guys. And this gives us a contrast, a, a really good one, of spiritual poverty contrasted against material poverty. And in verse 41, he sat down. And, and just watched. And again, Passover season, there would have been numerous givers. You can just hear the clanging of the, of the shekels hitting the, the buckets there. Well, I think it was actually a, a kind of a horn-shaped container that they would, would put the money in. And the fact that Jesus is watching, you know, uh, the manner of giving is interesting to me, you know, because... I can just imagine that, you know, with the proud, pompous people that we've been learning about that, you know, I mean, I just kind of think of it like this. If if I have that mindset and I'm going to give $100, say, to our offering this morning, then instead of putting a $100 bill in there, I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to get $101 bills. And you're sitting there watching me throw in this wad, right? I'll probably have a rubber band, so it's... You know, and I mean, that's going to look like that. So these guys are all coming. And then comes the, the you know what blesses me in the, watching the offering is the little kids pull their baggie out. You know, and they got their little, you know, dime or a couple quarters or whatever, and they put it in there. But, uh, you know, that's, that's more of the, the tenderness of their heart there. And so you got, we've had the spiritual poverty and the material poverty, and Jesus is watching. But... I have to think, you know, that he was grieved, you know, to watch innocent people, perhaps, not the scribes and the, those guys, but to watch innocent people putting money into a false system. I don't know, but, uh-huh. Is the, is the poor widow who gave connected with the one who, was devout, who, who had the, the, the devourment of, the, who devoured widows' houses? Well, I don't know. I think the lesson is certainly there that here comes a poor, destitute lady. And, uh, right. Right. Here she is, and look. Yeah. 
someone's like wife, you know? Yeah. And she, because it says she threw in all she had to live on. Yeah. So what was she going to do after that? Yeah. 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 That's right. This is, you know, in our day, that's the lady sitting at home watching the guy on TV and and get ordering the $2,000 prayer cloth, you know, and then still coming to church and taking, she ordered that cloth, nothing changed in her life, and she still is giving it to church. So I think the connection is certainly there, whether it's, a, you know, the lesson is there, whether or not this lady had actually been taken advantage of, I'm not, not sure. Yeah, I, yeah. I, th- I think the lesson for us is, like Brian was saying, that you know, she didn't allow her being taken advantage of by these pious people to disrupt her worship and giving. So, uh, but you know, we know that the two small copper coins, which make a penny, it's the smallest denomination of the Jewish currency. It was one sixty-fourth of a denarius, a denarius a day's wage. One of the mathematicians here, what is a day's wage? Uh, I think if you take the minimum wage for Georgia uh, times eight, you come up with uh, 60 bucks maybe. What's a 64th of 60? Huh? Less than a dollar. Less than a dollar. So, you know, so you got not much, right? And verse 43, he calls his disciples to him and, and he shows them all this. Um, and the fact, you know, where he says that out of her poverty, she put in, this is the point you were getting at, everything she had, all she had to live on. So she'd been devoured by the false religious system, was left totally destitute without having anything left to live on. She didn't know Jesus was sitting there perhaps watching. Maybe she did. I don't think that changed her, but she knew God was watching. She was worshiping is the way I look at it is, you know, her humble motivation was nothing but love. And here's what, I, I kind of went all the way back to the greatest commandment, you know, love the Lord your God. She was exercise. she was working out the Shema, loving God with literally, not her only her physical being, but all of her material being as well. She was really loving God. And um, she'd given all she had, um, This 18th century commentator, uh, Bengal, said this. She gave two, one of which the widow might have retained. She gave everything. You know, so, you know, here it was Passover, and she was silently saying to God, you know what, I love you with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, right? And, and, uh, Here's my life. She laid it all out there. And, um, you know, I'll end with this, that um, uh, the presence of Jesus in the temple that day had really stirred and elicited condemnation to the Jewish leaders, and it had elicited um, commendation for this widow. 
Right? She gave her entire livelihood. And it's kind of a picture of what he did for us, right? He gave his whole life. So they're done inside the temple. Uh, again, I, somebody researched this for me. How long were each of these incidences, you know, uh, what time that we know they got there in the morning, but it's still light out because we see in chapter 13 uh, as they walk out, you know, they obviously can see the wonderful stones. The sun is probably gleaming on those. But um, we're going to um, not do chapter 13 next week. Um, Drew is going to come and give us a probably a three-week overview on what comes out of chapter 13 um, by giving us an overview of the doctrinal statement of our church on the um, study of the end times. So you want to give us a little introduction? What could we read this week in prep for that? I, you know, I think the big thing that, um, you know, as we go through, we're going to look at the doctrinal statement of the church. Uh, but um, when we get to chapter 13, there, there are going to be things that Jesus will talk about that will happen uh, from his perspective in the future. When we come to Scripture, uh, two thousand years after that, um, you know, we we have in our minds a particular point of view, uh, or or you may not have a particular point of view. But I, I would say you can read either chapter thirteen or Matthew twenty four or some of the events in Revelation, and I just want you to kind of think, um, you know, how do you look at uh, some of those those ideas about when they occurred, what's the, the scenario that is being talked about, and uh, I just, I guess, want you to maybe try to think about, or find, or maybe have in your own mind, maybe where you stand, and, and maybe you don't, you know, you don't know, and that's, uh, so we're going we're gonna to then teach, you know, what the church's stance is. Um, not, on, not saying that you have to embrace the church's stance at all, that, you know, I mean, it doesn't affect your salvation, or things of that, right? Yeah, and then also, uh, there's a lot talked about just about the future, and when we talk about the end times, does that have any impact on how we behave today? So I don't know, maybe maybe kind of think about that, ponder that over the next week, and so we'll just kind of talk about some of those things, um, and hopefully it'll be a fruitful study. So. Thank you. All right.